Welcome to a special edition of Run This World. I'm your host, Nicole DeBoom. You're about to listen to an episode in the 10-part Touched by Suicide series. Trigger warning, this episode may include discussions about suicide, mental illness, substance abuse, and self-harm. If these topics are sensitive to you, proceed with caution. It may also contain strong language and is intended for an adult audience. If you are feeling suicidal, thinking about hurting yourself, or are concerned that someone you know may be in danger of hurting themselves, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. The hotline is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and is staffed by certified crisis response professionals. Please be sure to share this podcast with anyone who needs to hear it right now. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Touch by Suicide, a podcast series inspired by Steve Tarpinian, who died by suicide in 2015. I'm your narrator, Michael Lavon. In this series, we share perspectives from people who have been touched by suicide in different ways. Our goal is to raise awareness and reduce the stigma surrounding suicide and mental health issues. And... To always remember, you are not alone. Today we hear the perspective of a colleague and professional athlete. His name is Rip Esselstyn. Rip and Steve had known each other for over 15 years. In this interview, Rip reminisces on the fun times and laughter he shared with Steve over the years. Rip is passionate about helping others live their best lives. This means being open about their journeys in the quest for true happiness. But he also indicates that suicide is tough to be open about. It can feel invasive and too private to explore with others. This is a sentiment expressed by many people and exactly why we are doing this podcast series. If you or someone you know is displaying suicide warning signs, please call the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800-273-8255. Now, let's hear from Rip and Nicole. Today, I am talking with Rip Esselstyn about the mindset of a professional athlete to give us a little more insight into Steve Tarpinian. So Rip, mm-hmm. thank you for coming on today. Oh yeah. Thanks Nicole for, thanks for having me and uh, absolute pleasure to talk about Steve Tarpinian, who I loved and cherished as a human being. Well, let's start there. How did you know Steve? So I met Steve on the big island of Hawaii. It was either 1990 or 1991. And we both, um, we figured out a way to ingratiate ourselves and get on the press truck, even though we didn't have press uh, press credentials. <laughs> so we were, we were on this lead, in the back of this lead press truck. And we got the most amazing um, bird's eye view, I should say more like a turtle view of like the leaders on the bike and the run. And it was so exhilarating and so wonderful. I had never done the Ironman. Um, I was over there basically just as a vacation, right? Just to check out uh, and see what the, uh, the big event was all about. And I got to experience that first one with Steve in the back of this truck. And we had more damn fun together 
and then that was it after that you know we we became um terrific friends and we would always meet every year at hawaii i think for the next eight years i went out to the big island of hawaii two of those years i actually did did the uh, the iron man and the rest i was just there as a spectator um and then i would i would go over actually god it was probably the next no it was probably until 2000 and almost four i would go over um to and watch the big uh watch the uh, the iron man and then the week or two after steve and i would go and we do the xterra world championships on maui this is all coming back to me now um and we had more fun you know swimming out to the coast guard buoy um eating you know delicious uh thai food um just talking you know till we had smoke coming out of our ears about you know, what was going to happen at this year's Ironman, who was going to be first out of the water, who was going to come off the bike, how was Wolfgang going to do, how was, you know, Welchie going to do, um, you know, Dave Scott after he made his comeback. So it was, we loved just, you know, talking about all that, that shit. <laughs> it sounds like you two were meant to be friends. Like what actually drew you to Steve? I remember the press truck. It was like a cattle car it was. i mean you yeah. guys were like jammed in there and and oh, it was yeah. open air <laughs> they wouldn't stop for anyone to pee oh oh no it's so funny because there was this one <laughs> it was a it was a german um photographer who was on the press truck and he had like his favorite cap that he was wearing and it came flying off and he wanted he was trying to talk the driver into stopping and turning around and going back to get his cap and nobody, none, nobody on the truck, the driver, nobody wanted to do it. And he goes, yeah, thank you very much for your cooperation. And then, <laughs> and, that, and so that was like, ever since then, Steve and I, for years and years and years, we'd like call each other. And the first thing we'd say is, yeah, thank you very much for your cooperation. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Um, yeah, that is so great. I mean, I don't, did Steve end up racing pro? So I don't think Steve ever did race pro, but he was um, such a, like at the Xterra races on, you know, Maui, he, he did every one of those. I think he and Jimmy Riccatello did more than anybody else. They did the first one before it was called Xterra. It was called another name. I don't know if you know what it was. I don't remember, um, but I, I, I can't yeah. remember, but it was another name for like two years. And then it became the Xterra and Steve, he was known for doing every one of those, you know, and Steve, he had such a, a chill personality. He was so relaxed. He, uh, he, he, he knew everyone, you know, he held his swim clinics that he did on the big Island of Hawaii. Um, and I think everybody just really appreciated and loved Steve. Uh, he was just a gem of a human being. And so well, I think one of the things that I always loved about Steve is, you know, there's people that we meet and come into our lives. And I find a lot of people, they're, they're interesting, but they're not interested. So they're not interested in you or asking you questions. So it's not like a, a nice give and take. And I found with Steve, it was always this beautiful balance of he was just as curious 
as I was into knowing what was going on with him and his life, he was just as curious with me. And to me, you know, a great friendship is about having that a nice balance of, uh, of give and take and being equally interesting and interested. Well, and I think this is a really even gender relative because there aren't very many, I think, men who immediately feel comfortable opening up with other men. You know, it's yeah. something women naturally do. We just go out and do it. But it sounds like Steve was that kind of guy. You just felt comfortable around him. Yeah. I mean, and Steve, you know, Steve was, you know, he was a, he was a, he was gorgeous. Right. I mean, everybody kind of, you know, especially the women, you know, kind of fond over Steve. Um, but he also, he had also, he was able to tap into kind of his, into his feminine side in a really, you know, wonderful way that, uh, that I think made him softer and easier for men and women alike to approach. Yeah. Very approachable, you know? Oh, that's, you know, yeah. yeah. And not, and I didn't find Steve to be, um, although he was, you know, so good looking, I, I found Steve to not be arrogant, to not be aloof to, and he was the type of guy that, he would literally give somebody he didn't know the shirt off his back because they needed it more than he did. Yeah. Very selfless. Yeah. And aware of other people's feelings and needs. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Very, very empathetic. Um, Yeah. You know, you met him almost 30 years ago and he, you know, he died six years ago now. And, um, in all those years that you got to know him, Mm -hmm. did you ever guess that he was struggling? Mm -hmm. So I can remember. So Steve and I would, we would usually rendezvous always in October in Hawaii for like two weeks, we'd be hanging out, um, a lot and keep in mind, I mean, he was doing his clinics for a while. Then he was doing the Xterra race. Then after the Xterra race, he and, and Gene would go to Kauai and they'd hang out there for a week. So I think that for Steve, this was kind of like a three week chunk of time in his life. That was always a bit of a, a paradise. Yeah. I think he really loved it. And, and so and- I know. Yeah. Yeah. You got to be a part of that paradise in his life. Yeah. And and I'm going to come back to your question, but I can remember in 1995, um, I did the Waikiki International Triathlon. Um, I got second to Mike Pig and then flew over to the big island to watch the Ironman. And then after the Ironman, the next day, uh, flew with two friends, uh, Eric Carr and Joe Beer, to Kauai because I had this this notion, this perception. I wanted to hike the Nepali Trail, right? <laughs> it's the coast. It's like eleven miles each way. It's supposed to be absolutely epic. And so we went, and we had nothing more than shorts and a backpack, and all of us had sandals on. And we started the hike and we got like maybe six miles in and it was 
I mean, it started getting dark. It was raining. Nobody told us it got down to like, you know, the high fifties, low sixties in Kauai at night. And we were like, and then we, we were going to stop for camp and literally the mosquitoes were as big as dragonflies. And we're like, screw this. We can't. And so we headed back and instead of going forward, we headed back the way we came. And, uh, we had the most miserable night you can imagine. The next morning we woke up, we went to this waterfall that's like a mile and a half, two miles in, and then you have to hike into the island. And you know, Kauai gets more rainfall than any other place in the world. It's like 453 inches annually. So it was, it was amazing, but we also were exhausted. We came out to the parking lot uh, that enters the Nepali Trail and there was Steve and Jean, and they were like, oh, they were such a sight for sore eyes. And they invited us to come back to their condo and hang out for, you know, a couple of days. And so we did, and it was more fun. And Steve and I had, we had a contest to see, I can remember, because we both almost choked to death to see who could put more grapes in their mouth, right? <laughs> and so I think, I think, we tied at like 26 grapes each. And then we, before neither one of us could breathe and it also impacted the way we could breathe through our nostrils. Uh, but so always, anyway, I, you know, so Steve, so, but there was a couple of times when I would maybe like a handful of times when I would, I was in New York and I would go and stay with him and Jean on, where they lived near Montauk. And, um, there was one time in particular that we were coming back from the swimming pool. We had just gone for a wor workout. We were in his PT cruiser. He loved PT cruisers. And I remember him telling me that, um, you know, Rip, uh, I'm on this medication for depression. And I was like, huh. And he said, yeah, he said, it got pretty bad. And he said, in fact, it got so bad that I woke up one morning and I couldn't even put my shoes on. I couldn't tie my shoelaces. I had to be hospitalized. It was so severe. And uh, I just listened. I didn't, you know, I was at a point where I didn't have much experience with depression. And, you know, here, here's, you know, this wonderful, gorgeous man who you think has it all. Right. And, and he's, you know, I really appreciate him kind of letting me in and letting me know that he's suffering from depression. He's on medication. He didn't like the way it made him gain, you know, some weight um, and stuff like that. But other than that time, and it lasted maybe, we talked about it for maybe 15, 20 minutes. You know, I, I, I knew that, that Steve now suffered from depression and he was trying to figure it out, but we didn't have any like deep conversations about it. He never mentioned to me that, you know, he was suicidal. I had no idea about that. Um, and in fact, I was, I was actually on, I was in Long Island visiting um, a gentleman who invited me there because he started a, a plant-based organization called the Wellness Foundation, Doug Mercer. And I reached out to Steve to see if, 
we wanted to get together because I knew he lived not far away from there. And he mentioned he would do his best to get there, but he was having a hard time, right? And I didn't see him that time. And, um, and I think it was maybe a year later is when I, you know, just heard kind of through the grapevine that Steve had committed suicide. And I just was like, oh, my stomach just sank. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's tough. I mean, even as you're talking, you were one of the few people he let in, you know, and that's like a gift. And you were very, uh, I think, compassionate with him and probably felt good for him to have that lifeline. So mm-hmm. you should feel good about that. And I know undeniably there's a feeling that could you have said something, done something, reached oh, yeah. out more, yeah. you know, those feelings are impossible to avoid. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're right. Um, yeah. I mean, you always <laughs> kick yourself like, Oh my God, I, I could have been, I think we all feel like we could have been better friends, right. With people that have, that have gone. Um, I've got somebody um, in that's close to me that is, uh, that is suffering from depression and suicidal thoughts. And so it's kind of brought it more, you know, into the, into my realm, into my world and just how mental health is, it is such a struggle. It is such, it's a real battle. And I think more people than we ever, ever thought um, in some way, shape or form are going through some form of depression. They're hurting, they're trying to figure it out. Anxiety, um, I think it's really, really prevalent. It is. And the, the very scary thing is that it's invisible. And so until somebody says it out loud to you, you often don't know. And, you know, I wanted to talk to you with, from the perspective of a, a former pro athlete. And I know Steve wasn't a pro, but he damn well could have been, I mean, he was really good athlete. And, you know, there is, I think something about trying to put on a facade and it, that can be for, you know, as an athlete for your performance, trying to feel invincible, but I think that can carry over into, you know, your, your regular life as well. And so I think it might be, um, important to flesh out a little bit about this concept that like, he seemed to have it all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I think, I think that so as professional triathletes, we were, you know, I don't know about you, but it was about a 10 year span for me that I was pretty much singularly focused on triathlons. And you're not only, you know, you're, you're so focused on your training and, you know, being um, just as fit as you possibly can eating well, getting enough sleep that, um, it's so, to me, it was so all encompassing that when it ended, there's a serious vacuum that's there. And, you know, and you're getting all these endorphins, you know, you're training, you're, you're so in tune with your, with your physical body 
and uh, and what it feels like to you know feel like a, a kind of a demigod when it comes to being you know fit and looking you know like amazing and so then you got to wrestle with all right what do i do now what is my next step um and well am i going to stay fit you know what am i going to do to you know stay keep those endorphins going and for me you know the, the the transition into firefighting was beautiful because now instead of being you know i think we all trained with people but it's a solitary sport let's call a spade a spade it's pretty solitary and so um for me it was really important that i was part of a team firefighting love the adrenaline rush staying fit was important so i was able you know thank goodness gravitate into something was that was the perfect transition for me and it still allowed me to to train and i still you know competed at, at a world-class level for almost another you know six seven years doing the exteras so for so many athletes that i you know went through that decade with i think it's a, i think one of the biggest challenges is struggling to figure out what's my next move Right. And, um, and there's a lot of different boxes that I think as ex professional athletes, we want to check off and it's not an easy transitions I, transition. Personally, I think I, I don't envy anybody that's trying to make that transition. I know a lot of like ex swimmers that have stayed on to compete, you know, in the Olympics that are now trying to figure out what's their next move, you know, for, for one that I just met this morning, swimming, it's, he's going into the military, right? 23, he's going into the Marines. Um, but that to me is, um, is something that we got to figure out is the next move. Um, and, and, and I think about, you know, in Steve, for example, and he, you know, he obviously did some swim coaching and, um, and he did his, he did his swim videos and he wrote books. Um, but for me, like, I can remember actually ha having this conversation with him and saying, Steve, personally, I think I would recommend that you do something where you're with other people more. It's not so solitary. Do something where, you know, you're, you're almost forced into being, you know, in a, in a setting where you're with others. Because to me, whenever I saw Steve, he seemed to pretty much flourish, right? And, and, and I, I don't know if Steve, you know, was a introvert or extrovert. To me, he was a little bit more of a, probably an extrovert, but there probably definitely was a lot of introvert in there. Um, you know, I know when I get like down, I need to get out. I need to get out of the house. I need to engage with people. Um, I, need, I need to, you know, do a little bit of training. Um, but I think that if you can, if you can somehow do something where you're um, servicing other people, that is to me is, is the ultimate gift and the ultimate way to make yourself feel, you know, important and you're giving back and, you know, you're not just a, a, a drain on society. Yeah. And you know, that is how people with suicidal thoughts actually think. 
they believe that they're a drain on society, you know, and, and they believe that their situation is hopeless and they feel very alone. And so I think this, you know, it's a good reminder that even though it might feel like the last thing you want to do is go and be around people when you're in the dumps, the best thing you can do is to go find community, create connection and get out of this alone place where your brain can, you know, continue to perpetuate those negative thoughts. Yeah, like I, and this is like one, probably one hundredth of what it's like for people that have serious, you know, mental suicidal issues, get, get into that, you know, that hole that they can't climb out of. But like yesterday, I had a shitty day yesterday. You know, I, I came back from a fantastic week in Cleveland and, it started out off in the morning, you know, with <laughs> uh, some stuff with my kids and then my wife. And then it just is, it was amazing to me how the whole day I had this energy that I could not, this bad energy that I couldn't shake. And I came home and as much as I wanted to like peel it off of me, I couldn't, it was there and it was, th- it was thick. And I was around my family, but I was not engaging. I was just like trying to understand the feelings that I was going through. And again, when I, when I, when I get like that, which is not often, I think, wow. I mean, if for somebody that has this, um, and I don't know if we call it a, a disease or what, but if they truly have it, um, it would be hard to shake it off. I mean, yeah, I don't, I mean, I went to some practice this morning. I had a great night's sleep. You know, I find like when I'm, when I'm sleep deprived, when I haven't done any training, when I'm not kind of grounded and in tune with myself is when, you know, I can get, um, a little down. Right. Um, so I think that there's, I mean, I would imagine that there's probably a playbook out there for what people can do to help prevent them going down that, that, that black hole. And, you know, I've, and I've, so the, um, my writing coach, um, an amazing guy, but he typically once or twice a year goes into a very, very dark, ugly black place. And, um, you know, I, I've talked about it extensively with him and he sometimes doesn't know why, you know, what causes it, what triggers it uh, or how to pull himself out, but it usually lasts a good month or so. Well, and it, it makes me feel like one, even if we don't know that it might be helping just the fact that we're in these people's lives does help because mm. they come back to us, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. When you you know, how did you feel when you found out about Steve dying by suicide? Mm. Well, I was just like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. There's like, come on, really? Um, and then, so, and then a, a, it was, I mean, it was heart wrenching. It was absolutely, it was, it was God awful. And, um, you know, I think I immediately, um, 
tried calling Gene. I went uh, to his um, uh, service. Memor- his service, yeah. yeah, and watched his, you know, put his ashes into that body of water that he loved. Actually, we he took me swimming in it. Um, and I think it was it was all around the mighty Montauk Triathlon, if I'm remembering correctly. And um, you know, we we sat we sat uh, we stayed up the night before, um, and I think we all told Steve stories, which was great. And I hadn't done a triathlon in oh my god, the last time I had done any kind of a, a triathlon was 2011, the Xterra World Championships. I got talked into doing that. Oh my gosh, that was painful. But uh, so I spent about three weeks training for that mighty Montauk triathlon. And my goal was to be first out of the water and get the Steve Tarpinian award because, you know, the first person out of the water got that. And um, I got that. I kind of (laughs) figured out a way to get through the bike. And Nicole, the 10K, that was hilly. (laughs) <laughs> and and I had I had run maybe maybe 10 miles in the last six months it took me 59 minutes it oh was <laughs> so god awful but I was you know I, I was going to finish it was the Steve Tarpinian Memorial Triathlon um, but no it just it seems surreal that Steve could take his life um, and uh, but since then, you know, I don't know if it was, I think it was shortly after that, you know, you had uh, Robin Williams that committed suicide. I had another good friend that lived on uh, Oahu that committed suicide. Like, like I said, I've got somebody that's close to me that's also in a, you know, suffering from kind of debilitating uh, depression. So uh, this is something that has come into my life really almost starting with Steve. And before that, I felt completely oblivious to it. Well, that's just it. You know, I mean, what we're hoping is that there's been some change in awareness and um, accessibility to help and um, other resources for people struggling. Mm -hmm. And so I guess a good question would be prior to Steve's death, you know, what were your thoughts about suicide or did you not even think about it? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I had a great uncle who I just loved and adored, who actually, now that I'm thinking about it, also suffered from depression and would go into these periods where he would basically just be in his bed for like a month at a time. Um, And I can remember reading, he kind of kept a, a diary and reading it and being fascinated with it. But this was when I was like maybe 18, 19, 20. And that was the, my first exposure to any kind of depression. And in my family, you know, between my father and my mother and the four kids, um, I, I, and most, most of the circles that we ran in, uh, I, yeah, depression was something that wasn't um, on the tip of our tongues at all, except for Bob, my, my great, my great uncle. Um, But what I'm trying to remember, what was your question? (laughs) Well, you know, I guess I was wondering, like, 
before Steve died and after Steve died, did you avoid talking about suicide or did you open up to it more? Or, you know, after he died, did you not want to talk about it? Like, did you feel like it was sort of a shameful subject or Mm -hmm. how did, how did you experience that? Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm, would love to talk more about it and be more open with, with people that are suffering from that. Um, I kind of feel like it's a little bit of an invasion. So it's like, they almost have to kind of give you permission, which maybe is not the right, the right way. Maybe it, it should be, you know, if we know that we can ask them about it. But for some reason, I think for me, um, it feels like uh, I want to I pass, like, or I want permission. And then I'm, I'd love to talk about it. But it seems very private. Um, so, yeah, maybe that's a bit of a stumbling block for everybody. Well, you like, got- for example, like, like, for example, you know, one of the things that I try and do now is when somebody that I know that's close to me, if they have somebody in there that's close to them that dies, try and reach out to them and let them know, you know, how, how sorry I am. And if there's anything that we can do, because so many times people pretend like nothing's happened. And I think that's kind of a little bit, I understand why, but I don't think it's the right thing necessarily. And I'll just give you an example. One of my son's best friends, his father um, died in his sleep at the age of 43 from a heart attack, a massive heart attack. This is within the last year. And uh, so the first time I saw the whole family together, I let them know, I let them know how absolutely sorry I was that 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 happened. And, you know, I know it doesn't seem fair and it's not right, but I want you guys to know that you guys are going to get through this. And um, somehow, some way you're going to be stronger for it. And that was like it. And then like the next day I got this like really lengthy, wonderful email from the mother just saying how much it meant to not only her, but to the kids to have somebody talk about their father and just how uh, sorry they were that it happened, that they'd be okay. And um, that's just an example to me of where, you know, death, suicide, it's a funky topic for people. It is. We try to avoid pain and we don't want to create more pain by bringing up something painful, you know, so I understand it too. But at the same time, we want to show, we don't want to say the wrong thing either, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. but I think your approach is just, it's perfect. You just, you just do what comes naturally to you and don't avoid it. Well, and it's funny. So, yeah. So some, you know, as a firefighter, uh, I saw, I saw a fair amount of death. Right. And, um, and that kind of, it kind of affects you. Um, 
just makes it more real when you see it happening, um, you know, kind of frequently. And another thing that I've come to realize, and it actually wasn't until I retired from firefighting, is that how many firefighters actually are suffering from depression, from, you know, mental angst, and how many suicides there are in the fire service. And just like, for example, in the Austin Fire Department, I think there were, there've been three suicides in the last uh, year and a half. Wow. Um, And I don't know what it is about firefighters. um, If it's what you see on the job, if it's the culture, uh, but I think that the, the suicide rate, the, the, the amount of PTSD is, is pretty high. So you, you see some pretty traumatic stuff that you try and figure out a way to compartmentalize it and, um, and deal with it. Yeah. I think, um, you know, the veterans movements in the military are really pushing and leading the charge on suicide awareness. And I think that firemen, you know, firefighters, uh, police, many of our different functions and in society have those same sort of issues, the PTSD, the cultural changes, you know, when you go to a job like that, it's completely different environment at home. So Mm -hmm. all of those things can create, can create conflict within. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So no, um, trying to think, you know, with Steve. Um, and he was always so, he was always so supportive of me. Like I can remember when I had my, when my first, I wrote my first book, the engine Two diet, it came out in February of 2009 and he, it was an awful day. I mean, snowing like crazy. And he came like made the hour and a half, two hour commute wherever he was because of the snow and came to this kind of book signing party that I had. I would been on the Today Show earlier that day. And uh, I just remember giving him a great bear hug and him telling me that he actually wanted to write a book um, about his grandmother, who was really one of his heroes. And I, I'm almost positive that he ended up writing and finishing that book before he uh, committed suicide. Yeah, I think he did. And maybe someday we'll get to read it. Yeah. Well, you know, Rip, if you could talk to Steve today, what would you tell him? Uh, well, obviously I would tell him how much I love him. Um, what an absolute gem of a human being he is. And I am so sorry that you are hurting uh, this much, that you're in that much pain. Let's, let's fly out to the big island. Let's go for that swim out to the, uh, the Coast Guard buoy. Let's see those dolphins again. And once again, we won't touch them because we want to honor their space. Um, and let's see if we can climb up on that Coast Guard buoy and then dive in and, and swim back and, um, and get a great, uh, a great breakfast somewhere. Uh, but 
you will be you will be missed more than you know and uh and i'm sorry that it got to the point to where it did where you felt like the only answer was to take your life yeah thanks rip When someone dies by suicide, it is common for the survivors to erase that part of their journey and not talk about how their loved one died. When this happens, it perpetuates the stigma around suicide, which makes it harder for people to reach out when they need help. Steve Tarpinian died by suicide in 2015, but he also left a beautiful legacy of love and support to many people. By sharing his story and talking openly about suicide, it is our goal to help people who are struggling reach out for the help they need before it is too late. And by offering a glimpse into the perspectives of those who are touched by suicide, we hope to help those who are struggling with suicide or are suicide loss survivors. Please remember, you are not alone. If you or someone you know is displaying suicide warning signs, please call the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800 273 8255. Thank you for listening. Please share this podcast. You never know who might need to hear it right now.